From VinePair's New York City headquarters, I am Adam Teeter, and this is a Next Round Conversation. We're bringing you these conversations between our regular podcast episodes in order to give you a better picture of what's going on in the alcohol beverage world. Today, I'm very lucky to be speaking with Maggie Henriquez, the CEO and president of Krug Champagne. Maggie, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you very much for inviting me. A pleasure. Oh, it's a pleasure to have you. So, I mean, obviously, a lot of people who listen to the podcast are very familiar with Krug. Uh, it's probably the the brand in the world of wine in general, I would say, that is the most known, especially among the trade. And I want to get into why you think that is in a little bit. But before we chat about Krug, I'd love to talk about you. Um, can you just give me a brief uh, you know, rundown of your background and how you got into this industry in the first place? Well, you know, I've been, uh, I would say I've been in the, this industry all my life because my father was already in the wines and spirits. But I would say I started as a system, system engineer in my career uh, in 78, but it was with cosmetic and perfumes. And mm-hmm. I moved into wines and spirits in, with systems in 82. So since 82, I've been working with uh, wines and spirits. And then in 86, I moved into the commercial and marketing, including the operations. And uh, since then, with the with the exception of uh, from the year ninety five to two thousand one, that I was uh, president of Nabisco in Mexico, because I went alone to Mexico with my two kids, and I was still, I just got divorced, and because I was alone, I wanted to do something I could share with the kids. Uh, they yeah. have, they were fifteen and eleven, and this is you know this piece of uh, my life where I got uh, went into food. And then I went back into wines and and spirits. So out of my 43 years working, 32 have been in the wines and spirits. Amazing. And so when when did you become uh, president and CEO of Krug? Mm. This was, uh, you know, when I arrived, I joined this group, the LVMH group in the division of Moet, Tennessee, which is um, the the wines and spirits division of LVMH uh, in 2001. And I went to Argentina. This is, you know, the time that I passed in the 80s. I was very much connected already with wine and spirits, but especially wine on the on the tasting side and the commercial and tasting side. And spirits, I was very much a spirits person on the beginning of my career. And then it was in Argentina in 2001 where I got very connected to the vineyards, the wine growing, the production, you know, the whole uh, the whole process. And uh, and then being in Argentina, well, the, the, the whole work was well done and the group was very happy. And in 2008, at the end of 2008, uh, the president then, who was Christophe Navarre, the president of MONTNC, invited me to come and run Crook. And so I arrived in Crook in January 2009. Okay. And so, and so since 2009, you've been the CEO and president, correct? Exactly. Mm-hmm. Amazing. So... When we look at Krug as a brand, right, it's a brand I think that uh, is more beloved and well-known than almost any other wine brand in the world, especially amongst the trade. As someone with you know so much experience in the industry, why do you think that is? What is it about Krug that makes it so beloved and revered amongst you know this influential group of people uh, in the wine world? I think, you know, there are brands that are more known, probably Don Perignon, Moen, yeah. and they have strong brands that are more known. But it is true that Crook has an enormous respect from the trade. 
And I believe that this is connected to the fact that historically, proof generation through generation has always been in a very high quality, very prestigious. And I think that the fact that we really changed the way we communicate since very early in 2011, we, we put in every bottle a crook ID to tell the story of the bottle, uh, transparency, openness, giving the people you know, information that allowed the people to discover and connect much better with the, with the champagnes. This had helped the, the house enormously. And so people were already very respectful. But in addition to that, they got all the information. And so they felt very respected. And I think this combined, this prestige and, and this kind of amazing historical reputation that suddenly combines uh, itself with openness, transparency, uh, giving people the sense of respect and, and importance. This is what finally puts together this house in the mind of all these uh, friends uh, in a very high position, because it is true that the house has an approach that is unique in Champagne, and it is true that it is a house that was founded with this obsession of very high quality. And when you see ratings and you see the way people uh, evaluate always a uh, crook, it comes always very, very, very high in, in any one of the tastings. And so I think this combination of love and respect, and this house is a house that got back to to its origins of connecting. We are a house that is about, you know, discreet, very discreet, and it's about this emotional belonging, this emotional connection. And we've been building these links uh, back with, uh, with, with our friends, and, and this, all this together uh, puts a house very high in the mind of, of our friends. So, you, you know, you, you talked a little bit about the unique positioning that Krug has in the world of Champagne. For those that aren't familiar with that positioning, can you sort of explain to the listeners what you think it is that really makes Krug stand out as, as such a different champagne from a lot of the other, you know, as you said, very highly respected cuvées, whether they're Dom Perignon or, uh, you know, Billacar, things like that that are, you know, exactly. What is it about Krug that uh, is so unique? This is interesting because this really links us back to the origin of the house, to the foundation. And it is this uh, man who is uh, Joseph Krug, who arrives in Champagne in 1834. We have to think that 1834 is, a, is already 110 years after the first house of Champagne was founded. So you have a, an industry that is well settled. And this man arrives from abroad. So he comes from Mainz. He was born in Mainz. That today is Germany, but when he was born in 1800, it was France. He lost his nationality to the Prussians, and he always wanted to become French again. And this is how he end, ends arriving in, in Champagne in 1834. And he starts working with one of the two major houses of Champagne. Those days, the two major houses of Champagne was Moet and Jackson. He was working in Jackson. And he learns about, you know, it was his dream was to work in in, a, in Champagne because Champagne at that time was the the, the the wine, the dream, the greatest wine in the world. So he came working in Champagne in, in Jackson, and he discovers the industry and he discovers the the, the practices and on the. I mean, it was a well settled industry already. And this is there is when he realizes that normally every house makes you know regular Champagne, easy to drink, quite light, no, no complexity. 
And uh, some years, good climatic years, they make a vintage. So historically, a better champagne was a vintage because a vintage was always selection of better wines to make a better champagne. This is the way champagne uh, manages in general. Okay, Mostly all houses do like this. And then this guy said, you know, why do we have to wait for a good year to make a great champagne? I would like to make the best champagne I can offer to my clients every year. And to do so, because he wanted to create a great champagne every year, he decided to have a different approach to the champagne making. And this is how the House of Crew has starts by the philosophy of following every plot in Champagne. They are very little. You have 275,000 plots in 30,000 hectares. Okay. So normally people don't go and, and try to understand every little plot as one wine. Well, the right. house does. This is since the beginning, the, 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 the obsession of our founder was undisputed quality champagnes. And so he said to make a great champagne every year because you have good climate and bad climate. When you have bad climate, you have a very heterogeneous behavior of, of the soil. And so he said you have to go element by element. This is plot by plot. And how do we know this? Because he left everything written to his son, because he knew he was doing something first unique and different. And he, in 1848, left everything written to his son, because his son was six years old when he was already 48. So he was afraid he could die, and his principles couldn't uh, be perpetuated. So he wrote very clearly the importance of following every element by element, every plot as one wine. And uh, only those who are at the level should be used. He said very clearly, you can make in appearance good champagnes by using regular or, or, or even uh, uh, mediocre elements, but these are exceptions on which you can never rely or you may damage the operation or lose our reputation. You see, it was very clear on this obsession. And then he says, a good house should create only two champagnes of the same composition which meant same quality. And he has a different approach because he has a different dream. He wants to create something that didn't exist. And this is Krupp Rancue. And his idea was every year we're going to make this kind of a tribute to Champagne. It was a generous expression of Champagne to illustrate the diversity of this region. So we use the three great varieties. We go all over the region of Champagne where there is a good terroir with a good grower. We're going to explore and we're going to transform that terroir into a wine. We're going to follow it plot by plot, follow it year by year. And this is the idea of this man who said, uh, I can create, I cannot create you know, good climate every year, but I can build a library. And you have to imagine that finally what nature gives us is like colors. And so he says, uh, I can build a library with many colors of many different years. So these individual wines related to a very individual plot. And so he said, we build a library and I will be able to receive what nature gives me every year. And I go look for the missing colors to recreate the multicolor champagne. And this is what Cru Grand Cuvée is, which is really the most original champagne of a house. And it is something that doesn't exist outside the house. So why the Krug is very unique? Because it has a unique approach because this man had a different objective than right. the rest of Champagne. And so you add to that, of course, uh, time passes, you learn more, you understand better, you have more, uh, more uh, tools to, to do what we need. And uh, finally, you know, you get evolving. But the beauty of the house is you can say, 
this is a house where everything has changed and nothing has changed. So we follow <laughs> totally uh, the principles of what had made this house what it is. And so people discover, feel it, because it's a house, you know, we don't filter, we don't do poor treatment, it has this almost zero intervention. And uh, all of this is felt because it has an approach that is very unique and totally uh, uh, oriented to this uh, quality obsession. Amazing. So and with so much, so many accolades that, that the champagne has received, you know, how have you seen it influence or have you seen it influence other houses, other champagnes in the region? I mean, I feel like in the world of wine spirits, you know, the experience that you have, usually when brands are as successful as Krug, there are, I don't want to call them copycats, but there are people who take, you know, sort of what that brand is doing and, and try to replicate it in some way because the brand is seeing such success. Have you seen that in your, you know, in your career with Krug? Yes, it's very interesting because, you know, at the beginning where I, when I arrived, the house used to talk, I mean, it talked for 60 years about the, the oak barrels, you see. And the oak barrels are really tools, not, not more than this. And right. the, talking about the oak barrels is like you go to a restaurant and the chef comes out and you want to congratulate the chef on the good food. And you say, your food was fabulous. What do you do? And he answers, well, I cook in small casseroles. Who cares, you see? And so we used to talk about the little old barrels, and people thought it was just about that. But we never talked about why. But why the old barrels? The little old barrels was we needed little containers to be able to isolate every plot as one wine. And this is the major, uh, the, the major issue. And so with the time, we started to talk correctly about the house. And this has been only the last 11, 10 years, you see. So it's... It's been oh, wow. very short, but I do believe that, and we do a lot, you know, we help our growers, we try to help them technically also in their champagnes. And because we became totally transparent, we invite people, there's many champagne makers, they come to the house, they ask all questions they want to put a place, we will answer them, because we really like to do as much as we can, as a matter of fact, because we go everywhere in Champagne, because we use the three varieties, because we follow since ever, plot by plot, and we have a, a system that now is digitalized, so we really follow the plot, and every year we follow it, and we are now studying the, the soil, and we want to really get at the end all this information about the terroir and the connection with what you expect as wine, and we really want to give this to the whole Champagne. We don't want to keep this for ourselves, you see. And because whatever we can do to help the whole region to go further, we will do it. So I believe there are houses that were initially very inspired by the use of the oak barrels. Today, they are more oriented to the fact that smaller batches are important to assure quality. So this is what you see. Even I remember when I saw the new facilities of Moet de Jandon, Mm -hmm. uh, they showed us small tanks and they said, you know, we are observing and we are following proof. Because they do things in smaller proportions. Because smaller allows you to be closer to the beauty of one plot or the beauty of few plots in the case of the champagne approach, you see. And uh, and uh, when I knew, I, I discovered Krug, it was like 12 years uh, ago, for the first time, the, what, I, what I was impacted for was in this tasting with the growers. You know, growers come to the house to taste the result of their work. 
And this lady had three plots, and the three plots had three glasses, three wines. And the first two, they were marvelous. And the third was, was over-ripened. And immediately, Marcella uh, Master told her, you see, madam, I have the intuition you picked the grapes the same day because the first two are beautiful. And I have already told you many times, this little plot is very exposed to sun and it has to be picked four days before. And you say, wow, you see? And at the end, he said, well, madam, I'm so sorry. She said, yes, they picked it the same day. And he said, I'm sorry, but this little plot we love so much, we have to leave the house. And that means we pay it, but we never use it, you see? And then you find this little book of the founder that says exactly that, you see? When you are not at the level, you don't use it. And so it's a house very, very, very connected and loyal to this, you know, craftsmanship without compromise. And I believe that this is what people feel when they taste the champagne of the house. Amazing. So... Sipping a little bit away from Krug and more to you, uh, for for those you know that are that are curious, me being one of them, what does sort of a day in the life or your role look like as president and CEO of Krug? Obviously, you know you you take time to speak with people like me and to really promote the house, but um, can you give us a picture of sort of what uh, your job really entails as the president and CEO? Well, it's quite different. It was <laughs> difficult because it's a crowded day. It is true, you know, I like to do a lot of training. So I work a lot with schools, universities. I do a lot of um, conferences for different masters. I work a lot in, in luxury brand building because it's something I'm fascinated by the concept because luxury has been too badly used. But when mm-hmm. you talk about luxury, what is luxury? Luxury is that light that enlightens the past for others. You see, these people who find new ways of doing things to get further. And I have I have been fascinated by the whole understanding of what luxury is and how you build it and the level of time you need and coherence you need and the, and the strong commitment that you have to you, you must have. And so I do a lot of training on this uh, matter. And then I also do, of course, champagne. I do training in wines. And so I do lots of trainings in, with universities, also for the house, because I really love to, I am an ambassador of the house of Krug, of course. And then I, um, I work a lot in, in the communication with, with, the, with the region. So I do also, I have my group of women. It's called La Transmission. So we have a very diverse group, and I really like to do this because I think I believe a lot in the collective uh, actions. And uh, I also do a lot, well, what is my job in the house. So it's work with the teams to just uh, make sure that, that the vision is always clear and that all decisions we made are all aligned to the vision. And so you need to keep this vision alive all the time, you see. And then I do all the work I have to do to connect with Moet and C because finally we are one group and also we have to connect to LVMH. So there is a lot of work on, on, the, on the internal work, but also in the connecting with, uh, with, the, with, the, with the group and the division, I would say, and with the group. So you combine, the day starts very early and ends very late. <laughs> but I really love what I do, so I'm very happy. Yeah, that's. I mean, it sounds like an amazing day and really, really interesting yeah. and exciting. So, like and I do you, sport also. I like to do sport. <laughs> good. <laughs> you have some some things outside of work, which is great. <laughs> yes, yes. So, um, like you, I 
am fascinated by marketing and by luxury branding. Mm-hmm. I think that uh, there's there's just so much amazing things that you can do when you when you're able to build a luxury product. And I think you know when I talk to people in the industry, my opinion is always that I feel like LVMH more than any other company in the beverage space, whether it's spirits, uh, you know, the wine divisions, et cetera, does the best job at sort of creating luxury brands. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious from, from your, you know, your opinion, obviously we know champagne as being the, the biggest luxury area of the world of wine. But if you were to look at one other sort of, um, let, let's call it, you know, skew, whether that be rosé or that be Bordeaux, et cetera. What do you think is the most likely next luxury group? Is it rosé? Is it, you know, going to be Whispering Angel and things like that, that no. will be able to achieve luxury? Is well, it probably one day, but I believe that, uh, honestly, it's my, I did my thesis because I ended my PhD last year. Yeah, and my thesis was about the PhD thesis was about wines and, and luxury and why the luxury theories they do not apply and do not explain uh, why luxury wines. The truth is that many years ago, uh, the champagne, the high end champagne, was the high end pricing in all the wine world. Mm-hmm. But it's not the case today. Huh? Today, uh, the wine has gone further in in value. So you have mm-hmm. these wines that are very few. Most of them, you know, they are part of the 1855 uh, nomination. And you have Burgundy also. Of course, now mm-hmm. when you the prices that bottles have gone are, are impressive. And the world of wine has, has, has been transformed during these last 40 years because of the entering of the new world, you see. And right. so the new world facilitated the connection with the, with the consumer and consumer got interested in the wine and then they go for the high-end wines. And this has put the wines in a pressure because these are small domains and there's no way you can expand. And so prices of wine have gone really, really up. And uh, I think uh, there is a little bit of the fact that champagne is too much still linked with celebration. We tried not to be that or there, but it's, it's a reality. And the fact that you are linked to celebration puts the, the, the champagne or the product a little bit secondary to the celebration. You see hmm. the difference? Yeah. And the case of, of wine, wine can be at the center of an encounter, you see. And so wine went from, from uh, being functional. 40 years ago, it was masculine. It was about a, a wine to accompany food into a total experience, and it's mostly feminine today, you see. So I think there is a way to go in Champagne to continue to build on these luxury cues. Uh, and today there are some wines that I would say they, they, they are not built because none of the wines and spirits, we can say that we control the whole value chain, which is something fundamental to build a, a luxury brand. Uh, but uh, I would say that the behavior, and this is interesting, and this is the theory, and I ended my, my, my thesis with a chapter dedicated to what should be the cues and the, and the, and the principles to build a luxury brand in, in wine. Uh, but the truth is the first luxury brand in the world was a wine. It was in 1521, Aubryon. It was the first right. ever, and it was because it was the, the first to completely change the profile of the Bourbon wines. So this is very interesting. 
luxury is about disruption. It's about changing. It's about bringing something that nobody is expecting, but it takes for further. It takes you further as an experience. And uh, and it's true that in the world, the wines today, you have some houses that are really, really strongly placed, very, very high for the consumers. And the champagne, we are strong as brands, but I think we could go further. Wow. Okay, cool. That's amazing. If we have the takeoff celebration. And this is where we invite people to really enjoy champagne differently. You know, in a white wine glass, don't use flutes. Flutes is just this symbol, you see, but it is not going to allow you to, to enjoy the champagne because champagne before anything is a wine. And a good right. champagne before anything is about good wines. So why would you put good wines in fruits, you see? Right. And so we invite people, you know, enjoy champagne differently. Just there to accompany food is fantastic. It's really so elegant and it's so respectful. Good champagnes are fabulous to accompany a gastronomic experience. But this is all, you know, really at the beginning. You know, we are with music, eight years already. We invite musicians to come and translate sensations in musical terms. And this music impacts the experience. And everybody of Cook has this Cook ID, and you can find through the Cook ID and Cook.com or Twitter, Google, or an application that I always say laughing that is the only free thing Cook has done so far. So <laughs> you can download it for nothing uh, from Apple. And you can get, you know, all the different music that has been either produced or searched to go with every one of our champagnes. And you can have all these uh, gastronomic proposals to go with the champagnes at the same time, you know, like the tips, use the right glass, white wine glass, don't complicate yourself and not too cold. Because if it's too cold, you don't feel anything. So this is still something I think is in its way. Champagne still needs to be discovered more as what it is, and occasions have to be amplified for champagne to be really valued for what it is. Hmm. It makes a lot of sense. So one last question for you. Um, we have a lot of listeners to the podcast who obviously work in the the world of wine, beer, and spirits. They're making their careers, whether they're currently you know, on the floor or they're, you know, on the, the brand side, the marketing side, et cetera, you are, you know, have had such an impressive career. I'm curious, what advice would you have for, you know, a young person listening to this podcast who says, you know, I would love to be, you know, where Maggie is, you know, at, at, you know, the end of my career, you know, I'd love to get there. What would be your sort of advice for what they should be doing, what they should be thinking about in order to achieve, you know, the success that you have? Yeah, thank you so much. But I always, you know, I always doubt because if there's no formulas, but there are some principles that I think mm-hmm. are important. And the first is to never, never stop studying. You know, mm. we have to continue search. We live in the era of information. There's so much information out there. Let's never think we know. I always like this uh, message that one day, uh, Bernard, no, it was the verb, you know, the, the best wishes, the wishes for the year. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was 2016, and he said, I want to give you a gift. And he said, you know, I play good tennis, and, um, and one day I discovered I was in front of Federer. And this is the story I want to tell you. I realized that I loved the feeling I had. And why? Because I realized I was in front of excellence. 
Federer in tennis is excellent. And in front of excellence, you have nothing else to do but to question yourself. And I love this, you know, because I think this is such a strong message. You can always bring excellence in front of you. So what is what I propose is people, fight for your beliefs. I mean, don't just get complacent with what you receive. Is if what you receive or what you find is not what you think you need. And this fighting for what you think you need and not to be afraid on really bringing new things there to, to, to test new things, to test new experiences, I think is fundamental because the world will be from, for those who are there to find new ways of doing things. And, and if you do things like the other, well, you're just doing things like others. You are not bringing anything new to the table. So if people want to really go further, there's a lot of work, a lot of learning, a lot of humbleness. Be humble, you see, hmm. humble. And, and, and work with people, close to people, and hierarchy should not exist. Hierarchy is there for you to make decisions. Nothing else. Listen, because you can find so much information from so many people at all different levels, you see. Be able to listen twice and talk once, you see. And, uh, and especially fight for your beliefs and never negotiate your values. I love that. I love the, you know, the, the pieces you, you dropped, especially about being, trying to get in front of excellence to continue to challenge yourself. Yes. And this idea that hierarchy is only for decision-making, but nothing else. And across the board, then it's collaborative, I think is really important for exactly. development of careers. Maggie, this has been an amazing conversation. Thank, Thank you, you so much. much for talking to me about your career, uh, about Krug. It's been just lovely having you on the podcast and I really appreciate your time. Thank you very, very much. Thanks so much for listening to the Vine Pair Podcast. If you love this show as much as we love making it, then please leave us a rating or review on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever it is you get your podcast. It really helps everyone else discover the show. Now for the credits. VinePair is produced and recorded in New York City and Seattle, Washington by myself and Zach Jabal, who does all the editing and loves to get the credit. Also, I would love to give a special shout out to my VinePair co-founder, Josh Mallon, for helping me make all this possible. And also to Keith Beavers, VinePair Tastings Director, who is additionally a producer on this show. I also want to, of course, thank every other member of the VinePair team who are instrumental in all of the ideas that go into making this show every week. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you again.